So I, uh, I told you what I was going to talk about, and you're all, you're all still here. Um, so it's sort of like informed consent. That's how I felt about the topic. Um, so I've been been thinking about this this topic. Uh, Especially since since last week, when I was w- walking in a you know in a market and just buying a, so you know some produce and stuff and and um, in the background was this you know a little bit of a toothache which had sort of some effects on my mind. And, uh, but I was pretty, I felt pretty open. And I was just sort of walking in the busyness of the the market. And the thought arose um, that um, if I weren't afraid of death, life would be extremely open. And in that moment, I had a very kind of vivid, uh, visceral experience of all the different kinds of freedoms that would open up if I were free of the fear of death or, or maybe just less afraid. And I had this sense that it would reconfigure so much of my life. And further, that, that uh, in a certain way, um, the anxiety around, around our own mortality is a kind of uh, organizes all the other anxieties. And I, I don't think that it's the anxiety to which all, you know, everything else points. But it, it feels so, so central. And there's a, there, a lot of reason actually to pick it up as a topic for investigation, for heart work. Now, uh, the, these words are, are very much addressed to myself as much as you. Because there is this sense that we're sort of always trying to open to to our existential condition. And that uh, the kind of layers of denial around mortality are, are many. And in, in one of the, the suttas, um, Maranasati, mindfulness of death, the Buddha said that um, there are really, um, this is a vitally important practice, this is of great value, and it's the kind of thing that we, that many practitioners do on a daily basis to call to mind the reality of change 
and the the reality of of our own mortality, the mortality of 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 all beings. And so it makes me think of um, makes me think of the the line from uh, William Blake about kissing kissing the joy as it flies. And the question for us is um, is how do we how do we live? How do we live when the world is slipping through our fingers? How do we live in the context of, of change? And uh, the upshot of these kinds of reflections need not be deadening or heavy but in fact can be um, the very reason we raise them is because they actually offer some, you know, real value for our lives. Now, uh, I, I want to approach this very kind of humbly and gingerly almost. Uh, no doubt many people in the room um, have had, are having significant losses. No doubt some of us are, are not, not well ourselves. I remember when I was, I was doing um, a year, uh, the program, Year to Live. Are people, are people familiar with that? So it was a book by Stephen Levine that... Uh, encouraged people to organize groups where you would um, pretend as if this was the the last year of your life. And we actually, and I did this in 2006 as as a student, not, not a teacher, and we went through as a cohort of 30 people uh, the various kind of reflections and practices and um, we wrote our own eulogies and shared them with the group. We, we really they sort of made it in a very vivid way. And I remember I was talking about this with my, uh, my friend and uh, you know, old neighbor um, at the time. And she was uh, a survivor from the Holocaust and was in Hungary and Czechoslovakia. And much of her family, including her, uh, both of her parents were, were killed at Auschwitz. And I remember, you know, we, we had a friendly, we were, we were kind of close in a way. And, she was asking about my life, and I told her about about this year to live program. Now I'm saying this, you know, as a person in my 30s, and and her, she was very. I remember it was she was very kind 
of hostile and dismissive to the idea. And what she said was, um, you know, like, yeah, you can, you can do that and you can contemplate that, but you don't, you don't know what it's like to be, you know, in those uh, camps. And uh, it made a real deep impression on me and it encourages me to be very, um, yeah, to be very careful about how I approach this topic. And so, on the one hand, I'm, I'm uh, you know, relatively young and healthy, and this can seem like it's distant from me. But I actually do feel quite a deep connection to this. And it's almost like it's in the, the lineage of, yeah, especially on my dad's side, in the lineage of a kind of maybe preoccupation with our own mortality. And so, um, I think it maybe even comes out of my dad who lost his mom when he was 13, his mom died. And uh, he, he shared this story like when he was told, he was, a, you know, he's just a boy and he was at the hospital and, um, and the, doctor, the doctor told him, uh, but he didn't say, you know, your mom died. He said, your mom expired. And uh, my dad had to, you know, it's, it's, yeah. he had to go home and um, look up the word expired in the dictionary. And after that, he, both he and his brother became doctors. It's a kind, you know, in part as a way of like controlling life, managing illness. And so there's, there almost feels like a kind of genetic lineage somehow that this, this has always felt like a real, um, has always felt real me, even when I was quite young. Now, I, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to romanticize this in some way. And I was very struck by something that, um, that the biology, evolutionary biologist Stephen Jay Gould wrote, who um, he was diagnosed in, in, uh, with a serious form of, of stomach cancer in 1985. And he went on to live for another 17 years. And uh, I can remember as a kid reading his, his stuff in natural history. And, um, but this is what, this is what uh, Gould says. It has become, in my view, a bit too trendy 
to regard the acceptance of death as something tantamount to intrinsic dignity. Of course, I agree with the preacher of Ecclesiastes that there is a time to love and a time to die. And I hope to face the end calmly and in my own way. For most situations, however, I prefer the more martial view that death is the ultimate enemy. And I find nothing reproachable in those who rage mightily against the dying of the light. This is one side of my response to this issue. And you know, when and when uh, when people um, when their people are at a crossroads medically, and maybe there's a biopsy being done or something. I don't have a lot of equanimity at all. I am rooting for it to be good news, always. And so there is that side, as Gould said. But then, then there's, there's this too. This is Sam Harris. Most of us do our best not to think about death. But there's always a part of our minds that knows this can't go on forever. Part of us knows that we're just a doctor's visit away or a phone call away from being starkly reminded of the fact that our, of our own mortality or of those closest to us. The one thing people tend to realize at moments like this is that we've wasted a lot of time when life was normal. And it's not just what we did with our time. It's not just that we spent too much time working or compulsively checking email. It's that we cared about the wrong things. We regret what we cared about. Our attention was bound up in petty concerns year after year when life was normal. This is a paradox, of course, because we all know this epiphany is coming. Don't you know this is coming? You know this, and yet if you're like most people, you'll spend your time, most of your time in life, tacitly presuming you'll live forever like watching a bad movie for the fourth time or bickering with your spouse. These things only make sense in light of eternity. And so we raise this issue uh, because the... uh, that tacit assumption of immortality runs deep. And one of the things that I found in, in the year to live um, practice was that I would, I would have this sense of, I have come to some acceptance of my own 
mortality. And then what would happen is I would actually, in the process of looking and practicing, I would st still see there's a part of my mind holding out. And the practice of reminding ourselves in the five remembrances of actually honoring this in a way uh, to help clarify our, our priorities. Um, Freud said, our, our own death is indeed unimaginable. And whenever we make the attempt to imagine it, we can perceive that we really survive as spectators. At bottom, no one believes in their own death. Or to put the same thing in another way, in the unconscious of every one of us, uh, we're convinced of our own immortality. So, we, we raise this issue to, to see the kind of friction on the heart that's created by living in some denial of it. That, namely, that denial, as, as Sam Harris was pointing to, it never fully works. And there's a kind of friction in our lives that's created by that. There's a, there's a body of research called uh, terror. It's, it's got a kind of very ominous name, but it's called terror management theory. Not, not terror in terms of terrorism, but it's actually a study of what happens when um, uh, mortality is made salient, is put in the front of the mind, or the back of the mind, actually. And uh, there are a whole bunch of effects like that have been documented in, in experiments um, things that actually happen to our minds when we are either implicitly or explicitly reminded of our own mortality. Um, and this comes out of a kind of um, existentialist thinking, which says that we are, you know, we are animals who know that we don't live forever and therefore can feel anxiety. And uh, posits that um, that many of our cultural institutions and many of our personal identifications are actually ways of buffering ourselves against the anxiety of our own mortality. And so, this is one of the the authors. People are motivated to maintain faith in their cultural worldviews and to believe that they are valuable persons within their cultural conception of reality. 
because of this uniquely human process, which allows human beings to deny death and to minimize the terror associated with it, our worldview and self-worth take on great psychological importance. Now, what's, what's being argued here is that, um, that, this is, um, that these institutions are a way of buffering anxiety, but more specifically that they're a little bit like our attempt at immortality. And so we say, I am an American, or I am uh, a Buddhist, or a Christian, or a... And it's these kinds of identifications that link us with a lineage that existed before and will exist after us. When you actually make mortality, like put this in people's minds, there are a host of, uh, we could say negative effects, but also positive effects. So on the negative side, when people are reminded of mortality, they get more prejudicial. There's more in-group favoritism. They become more authoritarian, more willing to use violence. And if that's where the end of this story ended, that would be depressing, right? We could say that's the way that death can can really harden our hearts. but it can also soften the heart. So this is, this is um, Bill Moyers and Pema Chodron in, in conversation after, um, after 9-11. So Moyers says, On almost any day, well, I would say on every day in New York, you can experience random acts of kindness. But after 9-11, kindness seemed to be everyone's daily behavior. I saw so much kindness. And then, of course, it didn't take too long for it to disappear. Pema replies, Okay, so this is like a big view of what happens with individuals. And what we saw in New York, and you see with people who are in those states, that it's a softness, a kindness. It's as people said during those days in New York, uh, that it's the only thing that makes sense. And then what happens? The habit comes back because basically the kindness comes out of not being able to escape from groundlessness. And then when everyone's in the same situation, You're all groundless together. The only thing that makes sense is kindness. I I grew up in New York and was was out here for 9-11. But that that event, uh, seeing 
and my parents um, still live there, and uh, and there is something about seeing that that uh, the planes hit the buildings that um, kind of broke something in me, and it highlighted a kind of assumption that I had been making all my life without knowing it. Uh, which was something like um, something is protecting my life. And I didn't have theistic notions or anything explicit, but there was just a sense like, okay, if I just follow the rules, something is protecting my life. And the effect of that um, that experience was was as Pema was pointing to drop into that sense of groundlessness. Mary Oliver says, um, "When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I've made of my life something particular and real." I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. And so we we really want to make use of this reflection to, to clarify what's of true value for us. And, you know, one of the, the kind of most, most um, clear insights of the a few years I spent volunteer, as a hospice volunteer uh, working with, with people and their families uh, was that um, at, at the end of our lives, there are very few things that matter that matter deeply. When we look back over the course of our lives, there are a few things. And our, um, our practice is to remember those more. To remember those more. The Thai forest monk Ajahn Lee said, aging, illness, and death are treasures for those who understand them. If they were people, I'd bow down to their feet every day. One of the ways that I think about the Buddhist path is that we're, we're trying to live a life that feels complete. We're trying to live in a way that where it doesn't feel like we're, we're, something is missing. And furthermore, that we're living in a kind of uh, alignment with what we care about most, which, which makes life feel complete. And much of the spiritual journey is actually um, 
having what the heart longs for most, most deeply. And all the practices we do here and all the kind of heart opening and insight and concentration, it, um, it, it um, satisfies something deeply in us so that life begins to feel more and more complete. And, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the deepest kind of reflections of Buddhist practice is that uh, we're learning to, uh, to love and let go. To love and let go. And sometimes it seems like we actually have the, we, it's an option to hold on. But in our, uh, in our mortality, it's like the ego is all out of moves. And we have to surrender to a kind of deeper flow, a deeper truth of impermanence. And the suggestion is that that surrendering into the flow of impermanence need not feel like loss. That letting go need not feel like loss. We associate it with, we let go of something, we lose something but it, it doesn't actually have to rob us at all from this sense of completeness. And in fact, as we surrender more and more to impermanence, life feels more complete. So, I think, I don't know, but I, I, my feeling is that what's most imposing about our mortality is the, the sense of the loss of the, that the self is destroyed. The somethingness of our, our assumed somethingness, and I'll flesh this out, but the sense of um, what is threatened most is the I amness. And it feels like we need, to, the self gets destroyed, we need to let go of the self, that death robs us of the self, that death is the end of the self. But the Buddha said that we have been uh, cherishing a phantom all along. Protecting what is uh, in fact an illusion. 
And part of this practice of surrendering to the the flow of change is this insight into uh, the, the selfless nature of experience. That is, the, the very sense of the, the self inside, the kind of recipient of all experience, that which stands behind all the sights and sounds and sensations, that that, that is um, actually just more experience that's where we have not seen clearly enough. We have not penetrated with mindfulness. And so the sense of the somethingness of self arises. And it's the destruction of that that we are afraid of. But as we come to experience ourselves more and more as a, as a flow of change, we get more and more fluid and flexible. We have more and more uh, moments where we actually don't feel like there is a self inside. And as that drops away, it, um, the prospect of death changes dramatically. Because we, we know that, that death can't dis- doesn't destroy an illusion. <coughs> and so this, um, the actual flow of impermanence becomes more and more of a refuge. That is, that which we were actually afraid of most becomes uh, the refuge. So I want to close with... uh, a poem I actually read read up the hill in a retreat this last week, and this is this is from um, Nyogen Senzaki, who is a, a Japanese Zen monk who was in this country in in the forties and uh, was in the um, internment camp, uh, and. Uh, he was uh, he was released uh, in 1945, and then he wrote a poem on New Year's Day, 1946, which was the first time that he had regained his freedom. And uh, in this, he uses the word uh, zendo, which is the the Zen line for word for meditation hall. Like a snail. 
I carry my humble zendo with me. It's not as small as it looks, for the boundless sky joins it when I open a window. If one has no idea of limitation, they should enjoy real freedom. A nameless monk may not have the New Year's callers to visit him, but the morning sun hangs above the slums. It will be honorable enough to receive the golden light from the east. So thank you for your uh, attention and practice. And uh, yeah, as always, please uh, please pick up whatever is of of benefit, whatever is of use, and uh, and leave behind the rest. Okay. So, thank you. Thank you for teaching us. So I wish you well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.